Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mike Bond, photographer extraordinaire, legendary in the field of fashion, but outstanding and so creative in countless other disciplines of the lens. Yet there's so much more to Mike, who grew up in post-war London, travelled the world, became one of the movers of the swinging 60s in the UK capital, before through his love of angling becoming smitten with Ireland, where he has worked and lived for more than 50 years. Yes, photography is his forte, but music, writing, sport, travel and fishing also define the man who dissed the Beatles, only to have them write and record a song about him, instantly falling in love with Ireland, and along with his wife, Betty Wall, saving and preserving Temple Bar in Dublin, before eventually settling in Sligo, where he continues to produce wonderful images with his camera today. As the master turns 80, what follows is but a taste of the life and times of Mike Bunn through his own eyes, picture perfect after all these years. I didn't know much about Wakefield because I was only born there. My mother at the time was on uh, on way to Scotland where we were being evacuated in the war. Uh, I think two of my sisters were already there where we were staying in a place called Danoon. So uh, I have no real recollection of anything until I was about three years old and I have an indelibly etched memory since then. I can remember every single step of the way right up to today. I come from a seafaring family. My mother, English, and a little bit of Irish blood on my father's side. That's 300 years, you know. And merchant navy, not not the Royal Navy and all that stuff. And my mother came from uh, half Spanish, my grandmother's Spanish, and English. And on the English side, my ancestor, my, an- my mother's ancestor, Sir William Woolett was uh, the royal engraver to King George III. Fast forward a little bit. I knew at some stage that the travel and the art were going to be in my genes. It's amazing. We were brought back. Imagine that. Having the privilege of coming back from Scotland on the Flying Scotsman to London. We got to Blackheath Station, South East London, and we were taken by a horse-drawn taxi nearly eight miles to where our home was. My first school was... Uh, good Catholic school called the Assumption Convent and I then left there to go to a school called Sherrington Road which incidentally is the same primary school as where Daniel Day-Lewis went to and it was through that Sherrington Road school in Charlton which is very close to Blackheath uh, 
that uh, I became a Cheltenham Athletic supporter because Sam Bartram, the famous goalkeeper, used to come and give us prize giving. So it was moral blackmail. We had to be supporters. Otherwise, he wouldn't give the prizes away next year. Uh, at that age, I was very, very good at athletics, abnormally fast for my age. And just uh, tragically playing in the garden one day, uh, I got a piece of glass bottle in the back of my Achilles tendon. I couldn't walk properly for a year. But I got over it in the end and became not a sprinter, but I was very good at hurdling. I went to a school called St. Olive's in St. Saviour's. It was a day public school, officially now as a grammar school, in the city of Bermondsey, physically right on the corner of Tower Bridge and Tooley Street. It was an Elizabethan building, chartered by Queen Elizabeth I, and I really enjoyed it. I learned an awful lot about church music. My main thing was art, obviously coming through the family, and at that stage, my sister, Anne, was at St. Martin's School of Art. She was a very good writer, and she used to do ballet dancing, and she was, as much as she could, look like she, she used to dance the tarantella with the tambourine. And I just loved her free spirit. And I could see it come echoing in me as a younger, you know, I just liked that bohemian thing. And remember, I was one of the first, and my sister, we were the first crop post-war of teenagers that were free spirits. There was no compulsory national service. No one was fighting anymore. So we were suddenly allowed to become musicians, actors, whatever. You know, dirty stop outs, the whole lot. I went to uh, Camwell Art School to do figure drawing. Photography was in my blood through my mother. My mother was what they call a governess in East Africa. It was a posh thing to do when you were a kind of young woman. And she had a camera... The pictures, all were the same size. They were like six by nine format and all sepia-toned, 1927 to 1932. Imagine, it was out of Africa before the book was written. And I looked at these pictures, and my brother did, and we were fascinated with photography. We actually got this little enlarger you know, and cameras. We want to have a dark room, and it was in the stair cupboard under the stairs, and we were annoyed that we couldn't actually get big enlargements because the stair cupboard was too low. <laughs> my my mum's pictures were bigger than ours, <laughs> and better. <laughs> but that's what really got me going, and I figured with all the travelling I started doing, which was quite a lot, and through my travels I bought a camera. It was a Minolta SE, SE3, I think, and uh, it was a really proper reflex camera with a stat, really superb lens. And I started taking photographs. And uh, photography then started becoming a very serious kind of part of my life. My early days as a free spirit in London, is still at school now, various teenagers used to meet at weekends and that, that had interest in art schools and things like that. And we just got involved in the coffee bar, the, the jazz scene, the music scene, we were the nucleus. We couldn't help it. There was about three or 400 of us. But we were the ones that were creating. We were the movers. The others were the shakers. They had to copy what we were doing. Like we started a new trend in music. We started wearing Matlow T-shirts. Everyone started looking for a Matlow T-shirt or flared Levi jeans, which he couldn't have because they were just unavailable. I got them, because my younger sister used to flirt with the... 
you know, the, you know, the American air bases in East Anglia, and she'd go there at weekends and get me cigarettes, at seven, seven and sixpence for 200 cigarettes, you know, and then you'd pay a Levi jeans for a pound. You're right. I'm telling you, the real thing. Like the student days early on with traditional jazz, long hair, rope sole sandals, like, you know, Romans, and duffel coats, you know. And we started listening to rhythm and blues, muddy waters, all that. And jazz on a summer's day, 1958, it was great, terrific. I just loved listening to uh, Anita O'Day and Jimmy Jeffrey singing Train on the River. We were cool. We had the skiffle group, but we took it outside of the bounds of uh, the school. And I used to go to a club. No one mentions it in the history of the 60s. The Gaia and Gimbal, which was in a basement on a street called Villiers Street near Charing Cross Station. And under Villiers Street, there was the arches, kind of white ceramic, you know, the white glossy tiles. And that's where we used to go and sing and earn money. You're suddenly beginning to departmentalize yourself that this is my department now, skiffle and folk music, where some of the others might have gone more to painting or writing, poetry. <laughs> Through the guy and gimbal, and the, you must met other people, because one, one of my very strong acquaintances then was uh, Long John Baldry. One of my close friends, you know. And isn't it funny, even then we knew he was a little bit more Martha than Arthur. But he had this voice, and he was only 16. A very good guitarist, very good blues guitarist. Very simple. He didn't play a lot of picking, but whenever he plucked a string or did something, it was accompanying his voice. But at the same time, I was going to the Ballads and Blues Association to Soho Square, run by the one and only Peggy Seeger and Ewan McColl. And I loved it. We'd go there and meet, we'd meet people like Fitzroy Coleman, Rambling Jack Elliott, Pete Seeger's group, the famous group. And then Peggy would sing. Ewan McColl singing his unaccompanied. One day, I thought it was the 17th of May, 1959, but it was the 17th of June. She told us all to shut up. This is Peggy Seeger. And she was going to sing a song, unaccompanied, for the first time ever. No one's ever heard it. It was a love song that Ewan had written to her for her birthday, and that's why it's appropriate for her to sing it. And she sang unaccompanied the first time ever I saw your face. So I was there, privileged to be there on the very first performance of that song. And you won't believe it. I just forgot about it, but 20 years later, I listened to this song. I thought, I've heard that song before. And it was beautiful. It was Roberta Flack singing it. And it was in the hit parade for months and months and months, you the know. The first time ever I saw your face I thought the sun rose in your eyes And the moon and stars were the gift you gave the dark and empty skies, my love. Say, love, stop. 
What happened? I, I felt that I hadn't travelled enough. I went to sea out of really a sense of duty because I was breaking the lineage of 300 years of seafaring, but I wanted to find out what the seven seas were like. And for some unknown reason, I just applied. I got a job as a steward on the SS Canberra that hadn't even set sail. It was being finished off in Harlander Wolf. And we went on the trial runs up to um, the island of Arran. This is the one in Scotland, not the Arran Islands. And we did the trial runs and we came back then. I think we didn't go back to um, Belfast. We went straight to Southampton, where for nearly two months the ship was being fitted out loaded with thousands of mattresses thousands of carcasses of lamb and sheep beer everything because it was due to go on its maiden voyage on the second i think the second of june 1961 and i loved it why wouldn't you and i saw on the itinerary hawaii I used to think of Hawaii as being part of Rupert the Bear in Beano, the comic where the mad professor lived in the jungle. It was really lovely. It was known as the Queen of the Pacific. I did two trips on the Canberra. I did another one on a ship called the Iberia, which did a much more interesting trip. So I went to go to Europe. This was a five-month trip, not three months. And it meant we went to Hawaii. We went also to Fiji. We also went to um, Singapore. Hong Kong, to Philip, Japan, Yokohama and Kobe. And I just like the idea of doing a bit of that, you know. After the Merchant Navy stuff, two of my other school friends, uh, they were on a ship as well, doing what I was doing. And we wanted to hook up. I was waiting to come back from their trip. And we were then going to buy a van and go all the way to Hong Kong over land. We were just loving it. But when they eventually turned up in France, we converted the little Ford 500 weight van. We called it Aunt Lil. And we carried on just driving this car, and we ended up in a place called Torremolinos eventually on the 2nd of November, 1962. I'll never forget it. We were busking in the streets for, for money at the time, you know, just to fill the car with petrol and that. It was very, very exciting because we suddenly saw these people crawling out of a basement what looked like it's on the street but slightly low down this little club a bar they didn't look Spanish and they looked middle aged you know and uh, we spoke to one of them and they said yeah that's Pedro's bar you know that's where we all hang out you know and it turned out that they were sort of career war veterans living on their pensions and also a lot of Americans Sam Bronston was making a lot of films in Spain at the time, like El Cid, just down the road. We just, that evening, got our mandolin out, banjo and guitar, and we started singing all these American folks. They couldn't believe it. We were singing their music in the south of Spain, you know. And that's where I ended up staying for two years. It was the London art scene look that made it popular. I was walking around with orange and white gingham trousers, a pink shirt with mo frills, which I get them made for nothing and a parrot on my shoulder, and I was brown. Mahogany with the colour, as they say in Dublin. The interesting thing about uh, southern Spain, uh, for me, was that uh, uh, when I was in the, the club I was running at the time, I noticed this chap who was quite moody, sitting with another guy who was a little bit older, but a little bit more fluffy-haired, sitting outside Pedro's bar during the day, quite serious and that. And then that night, I saw him in the nightclub. He came up to me and said, where'd you get the music? You know, with that kind of lip of... This is incredible music. 
we're playing the Isley Brothers, we're playing Nina Simone, you know, and all this, I can Tina Turner. And he couldn't understand where we were getting them from because they hadn't even got it in Liverpool. But it's because my friend Mike, one of the people I was with, his uncle was TV producer for records in London. Every week he'd get tons of records to listen to. He knew we were in Spain running a nightclub and he'd send boxes of these over on the night flight from London to Gibraltar. It was cheap night flights then. And we'd get them shipped up to us and we were playing all this fresh music all the time. And that's how I got the conversation. It turned out with John Lennon. Yeah. And Brian Epstein. And we got talking and one of the records we were playing was Ferry Across the Mersey. So ferry across the Mersey And always take me there The place I love And Brian Epstein said, ah, that's my group. And that's Brian. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I manage those people singing. Then he introduced himself. Then he introduced John Lennon. I never heard of him, obviously. But um, he, he befriended me and... Uh, I had a couple of young Moroccan friends then that were naughty boys. We're Frankie and Johnny, we called them. One was French Moroccan, the other was proper Arab And they used to be naughty boys. They would perform for gay men, if you like. You know, young male, what a hookers or whatever. And so I sorted Frankie and Johnny out with Brian Epstein because he asked me who those two little boys were. And, I said, well, yeah. and so they became friends and all that. So we got more talking to not just John, but Brian as well. And uh, they were there for about 10 days, two weeks. I saw them most evenings. And John used to... I had a sketchbook in in the club. It's great. I have a drink and sketch on listening to... Played a lot of jazz there as well as the other music. A lot of rhythm and blues. And uh, he would be sketching away, and as he finished one, he'd turn it over, turn it over. And then in the morning, there were all these bits of uh, sugar paper, charcoal. I just used to throw them in the bin. I wish I'd start being a millionaire now, probably. I went back to the hotel and John wanted me to listen to the, these two demos that they had done. Remember, they were demos, so no one probably had ever heard them other than the recording staff and John's own group members and Brian Epstein. And they said, we got this group, we're calling ourselves The Beatles. And I thought, what a terrible name. I'd got this art school London, The Beatles. And then I heard the first demos. <laughs> I was kind of cringing. It was love, love me do. Love me do. Oh, love me do. And on the other side, it was probably wasn't the other side. It was just a continuation. Was she loves you? Yeah, yeah. And I thought, is this the Isley Brothers and I can take a Turner against you know? But anyway, I just left it at that. Little did I know that nine months later, when I went back to London, they were top of the hit parade with those songs. I befriended a, a chap that had been in the army, I think in the Air Force there, National Conscript, whatever they call it, Michael Stone. And he liked me because I'm into photography. That was his big thing, you see. And I really was taking photography seriously. He said, Mike, I just got a telegram from a friend of mine, really good Jewish name, Matt Finkelstein. He's a really good photographer and he's been in Morocco. And I thought, even then, how can someone with a Jewish name like that go into a really Islamic place like into Morocco with the Bedouins out there and I'm meeting him he's coming you know from uh, Tangier I'd like you to meet him and I never forget 
he pulled out of a wallet some sort of they were probably no A4 they weren't ten a bit bigger maybe A4 black and white prints photographic prints and I said blood these pictures are incredible I just loved them and he had two Canon five rangefinder cameras black with lots of brass on them with them half worn out and I said this is what I want to do and I went back to London then to learn photography there was no art school in the entire world where you could learn photography it was just a very ordinary job whether you either worked for a newspaper as their reporter doing sports or journalism or maybe it's slightly more upmarket a local family portrait studio which has been on ever since photography started and the only jobs you could get was an assist as an assistant or as a lab technician and I thought well I can't live on seven pounds a week in London Chelsea with a girlfriend and a flat for seven pounds a week that's all you would have got and I was earning guts of a hundred pounds a week in Spain doing what I was doing it was a lot of money so that kind of fell on its face but I still love photography and suddenly I got this job in Nick's diner which turned out to be the main eatery of the 60s the swinging 60s and uh, it was just amazing because I was still learning photography myself little did I know that suddenly I go back from Spain to London and I walk into the Chelsea Potter which was our pub from the art school days we've all come to regroup again after going on our worldly tours and that I was looking pretty good because it was January I'd come back from Spain I still had my mahogany color walked into the Chelsea Potter and this girl comes up to me Sue Boffy she was younger than me but she hadn't seen me since she's part of the art school movement She's arm in arm with this guy with like, a big brillo hairdo. And uh, she Mike, I haven't seen you. You look great, blah, blah. We're chatting away. I said, yeah. I said, we've all been just doing our stuff. And what was lovely? The guy that she said, you've got to meet my friend here. He's Rod. And uh, I said, hi, Rod. And he said, he said, I can see this bar ain't big enough for the two of us. It was Rod Stewart. But, I mean, he was just Rod the Mod to me, you know. And he was right. I never saw him in that bar for ever again. But we, we, we became acquainted, you know, because of that. And the next time I went to the Chelsea Potter, two weeks later, uh, Sue, the very same girl, Sue Buffy, was coming out with this really tall, I think it was a girl in a man's suit, long hair down to his waist, thin, very tall, and it was Mick Fleetwood. Fleetwood Mac he was only 17 I thought he looked like Gene Shrimpton in a man's suit but it was all that kind of thing was moving on and you gradually I suddenly realised that Nick's was Nick's diner was the centre for anything to happen in London at tea time and beyond it's where everyone suddenly everyone wanted to be a model a fashion photographer right uh, taking pictures for LP covers and so Nick's was a place where the Svengalis would bring in, with money, would bring in their potential new models, their potential new fashion designers, their potential new singers. And the whole idea was, we would then, after Nick's had closed, we'd go to Blazes. No one's even written about Blazes. It was our nucleus. It was our place where we hung out. It's not where you had people going there, crowding, having bouncers, and we just went in there. But every night there'd be Jimi Hendrix there, Henry McCullough, there'd be uh, Brian Jones and the, the Rolling Stones, he was still alive, Joe Cocker. 
we'd, we'd all be there just having, hi, we're drinking together, playing pool together and all that. It's where we hung out. But I didn't particularly want to take fashion shots or anything. I just, I, I wanted to develop. So I was teaching myself all the time the history of photography, the alchemism of it, and eventually bought another camera and an enlarger, which I had in my own little flat. Stamford Bridge, you know. My apartment was absolutely bang next to Chelsea Football Stadium and they used to train in the yard against a wooden fence not in the morning banging balls we used to hate it we sat on the top floor we'd come back from nightclubs at like five in the morning try to get some sleep we used to have these you know the little plastic bags you get in supermarkets to put your vegetables like that we'd fill them with water and drop them down like water bottles we ever shut up it was a mutual agreement we all laughed at each other you know and they'd be asking us about the women we were meeting that night in the clubs because they couldn't. I befriended a girl called Maggie McGiven. She was just my mott, as they say. She's my girlfriend, you know. They called us London's Sonny and Cher, you know, because we were always together. And we always held hands. People didn't do it. I mean, that was a lovely, gentle thing. And we went out for nearly three years, but that was unheard of in the 60s, you know. And we were just Mike and Maggie. And uh, when I first met her, she was working for PJ Proby, who had an apartment somewhere down off the King's Road and on the top floor, and she was looking after his dogs. But then when she left Proby, she went to work for Marianne Faithful, looking after her son. And I used to go and see her quite a lot. But Paul McCartney was often going up and down there because at the time, I think he was falling out of favour with Jane Asher. I realised that I was more interested in another life than stomping up and down the King's Road, changing my clothes three times a day to look like a peacock, right? I didn't need that anymore. She'd finished working with Marianne Faithful then and had uh, an apartment, Walsingham Mansions. During that time, Maggie had left Marianne's, but she also had befriended Paul. So remember, I wasn't really going out with Maggie anymore. We were, but you know it wasn't... Um, put it this way. We weren't spending nights together and that. It, it's one of those things. And um, when I kind of left... <laughs> if you like, uh, out of the blue, I was looking for her one bank holiday and um, I couldn't find her. And she'd gone off to Sardinia with Paul McCartney, right, who was bemoaning the fact that Jane Asher had left him and Maggie was kind of having a little bit of this thing with me. So they became kind of an item and quite a close item. I wasn't the jealous lover or anything like that. I knew it was over. And I went to see her one day because I wanted her to do a favour. for. I'm not saying what, but it was a, f a very good friend of ours. Because she couldn't meet the friend that we were supposed to meet to do a favour with, I had a real serious row with her, you know. Right, really bad row. And um, that was that. I remember about four or five in the morning, I saw Paul McCartney walking down Fawcett Street. So I'd been in a nightclub. We'd been out somewhere, but a suit hanging off him, barefooted, looking fucked. And I thought, that's him. And I remember saying, I thought I saw him. 
see, Maggie and me didn't talk then for a while after the row, obviously. But we were talking about She said, yeah, she, he came up there and uh, it was uh, really getting serious because Linda Eastman was in the background always. She was having none of the Maggie stuff. Although they'd secretly had a little bit this thing going on. During this particular period, that row we had, accompanied with the state of Paul McCartney in her apartment, which I, I hadn't wrecked, but I, I made it quite clear about certain things. He went away and two days later wrote the song Rocky Raccoon about us having this row. So, according to Maggie, she said, you know, he wrote that song about that row. So, I, I'm Rocky Raccoon, good, bad, or indifferent. Rocky Raccoon checked into his room only to find Gideon's Bible. Rocky had come equipped with a gun to shoot off a lens of his rival. His 21st rival of May. 1968. I must have still been going out with Maggie-ish because on the 21st of May, I was I booked in to stay at the Sheelan Shamrock Hotel. Just no Googling in those days. I don't know how you did it by reading about something and then phoning up. You had to phone people to get advice. And they said Sheelan Shamrock, Mike McCabe. And so I, I did all that. Actually, that night in Sheena Shamrock, I knew nothing. Everyone was ten times my age, and I still had a Chelsea haircut, and I looked quite trendy. And who is this guy, you know? Who does he think he is? And I got very drunk that night already, because I was beginning to be taught Irish. The next night, it was even better. What happened the next morning, after breakfast, everyone was going out with their boatmen. I'd never met boatmen before, men with welly boots, holding these great big hampers and the rods and all that, and they were going to their boats. And each man had a boatman and a boat, and all the boats for Sheen and Shamrock were brand new for the Mayfly fishing every year, and I had no engine, no boatman. I felt totally impotent. I saw these boats taking off like the Spanish Armada. I turned right into at, at the any river mouth. So I said, well, I'll just row. So I had a few practice casts just to see if it was floating in that. Then I saw this fish rise. I cast it, very first cast, what? Exactly three and a half pound wild brownie, polished chrome. I wrote about it in my book. And, and then about 10 minutes later, I saw another one. I did the same and hooked that. That was exactly three and a half pounds. And then at this stage, I could smell smoke. And there was not much happening. And there was still a few flies. So I started rowing just round the corner of one, another bit of the island cast for another fish and I had it it was exactly the same weight and I heard this I looked up and the man said I saw you catch all three of those well done come and have a cup of tea he was the smell of smoke was him boiling a kettle which I'd never seen before throwing fistfuls of tea into the top of it no tea bags it was the real thing and I remember him saying to me that's a lovely bag of fish you have there. I've watched you catch all of them. You know what you're doing. I said, do I fuck? It's the first time I've ever cast a dry fly like this in my life. I just rode back. And then I went into the lobby in the Sheen and Shamrock. I can't think of a name. Peggy was, the, I think, Mike McCabe's wife. Or was it Peggy? Was she the one that was behind the... It doesn't matter. She had twin set and pearls on hairdo, right? Makeup. And 
I said, you know, my name's Mike, Mike. And she, oh, yes, I see you. And uh, I said, I wonder if you can help me. I've got three nice fish. Can, can we put them in the fridge? She said, no, 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 no. Uh, let me see them. And I put them in the net then, you see. And she said, look, wow, wow, look, very well done. No, what you have to do is put them on the floor, on the slabs, on the left-hand side of where I was standing, which when you came in, they were on the right. And uh, why is that? I said, no, you have to put your name on them, what you caught them on, and the weight. So I said, okay. And she gave me these little bits of card, and I said, Mike Brown, three and a half pounds, dry mayfly. Suddenly, about an hour later, they're all coming back, you know, the general, the major, the candlestick maker, the doctor, the whole lot, the priest, probably, with all their boatmen, looking at these three fish. And uh, they had nothing. I think one of them had a two-pounder and something, and a couple of smaller ones, but how dare he? No engine, no boatman. They thought maybe I was poaching. But I was hooked, and the very next year I came to uh, to Loch Arrow, and uh, it was when Michael Poinder, he took me to visit Karakil. Now, remember, I've been all over the world with one thing and another. I went to Karakil, and I say in my introduction to this Yates book I'm doing, in September 1969... I was taken to visit the early Stone Age burial sites at Karakil on the Brickleaf Mountains, overlooking the most beautiful of lakes, Loch Arrow, where I was enjoying a fishing trip at the time. At an instant, I was fused to the spot, as though some kind of divine spirit, perhaps God himself, had descended from the heavens and exposed all this magnificence. But knowing I was young... A free spirit and uncontrollable had to deliver the tooth of the hound to steady me. But the tooth was barbless, drew no blood and caused no pain. And he approached me, handing me a baton, saying, you're free. But you have to stay. That was 54 years ago. The very first job I did you won't believe this, was for Aer Lingus. I met a, a Dutch graphic designer who was doing all the Aer Lingus in-house stuff. Aer Lingus at the time, one of the biggest airlines in, in the world because it was private and it was making money. I just bought this filter, very trendy, called a triple turret filter. It meant when you photograph, if I was photographing you now, I'd get three images of you. They just invested in three uh, 737 Boeing jets. They had this idea they wanted to use them for, for package tours in, in, the, in the winter months because this lens was trendy and it's still the 60s I used it and so we had the 737 landing and taken off at our disposal for half a day more or less and it was the pictures with the triple turret lens where it looks like three of them are landing which is the three and that was the report and that's my first job my first job in Ireland is for an international airline <laughs> report and accounts cover it was unbelievable but I did a lot of work for them, and I was doing a lot of travel work, you see. And I'm in the early days, um, and in 1971, I went to London to get a couple of models to go on this package tour. It was brand new. No one was doing it in Europe. There was Blue Skies in Ireland and Joe Walsh Tours and one or two other people. It was a new thing to do package tours. So the countries like Greece and Spain weren't really ready for it as a big thing. They came over to Spain, and we had... We have to get the feel of the place. I mean, we're not doing anything for 10 days. We should go out and drink and get the Then I started taking the pictures and they were very good. Mike's days as a singleton were numbered when he reacquainted Miss Betty Wall, an international model from Crumlin. I'd already met Betty twice in Dublin through very good friends of mine that knew her. And she was just a lovely girl and you would see her every now and again. And then what would happen, she would 
disappear. But I used to go into the Bailey quite a lot then, you know. And I, believe it or not, I was very, very shy, really shy. But I knew how to pose. People didn't know who I was. The women used to flock. And one day I turned round and it wasn't Betty sitting there with a fur coat at a table with another girl who, who I knew. And she said, Mike, hi, how are you? And I said, oh, hey, haven't seen you for ages, blah, blah. And uh, we sat down for it and said, do you want to drink? No, she wasn't drinking. And she said, I've been trying to talk to you for months. But every time I see you, there's all these women after you. And uh, she meant that in a joking way. And, and she said, to tell you the truth, Mike, I think I prefer to show you through the back door than the front door. And she said, I'm going home now. And I said, well, I'm going. Can I give you a lift? And she said, yeah, but would you like to come in for a cup of hot chocolate? I fell for it straight away because I, she didn't drink, but it's just the way she said the hot chocolate. She spoke very softly, very gently. No nonsense. And she'd been everywhere. She'd been to Paris, living there. She'd been to London, being there. But she knew about fashion. I remember her looking at a portfolio I had with, you know, you unzip it, there's all these tear sheets. And she said, um, whose pictures are these? Are these like, is this the kind of work you're trying to do? And I said, no, it's all mine. She couldn't believe it. She said, I've, seen, I've seen nothing like it, you see. And I think it's then that's when we really got together in a visual way. And we got a, a flat in half a house in Leeson Street then, Upper, upper Leeson Street. And one day she said to me, Mike, I'm fed up with you doing all, all this work, traveling around. You need a space where you can maybe develop, have a dark room, and maybe take the odd portrait. So she found an ad in the Irish Times that said, Dada, and I went and I took it. It was just off in Crown Alley. And then a week later, didn't she get the shop there? And suddenly, little did I know, we were setting the seeds for Temple Bar. Two shops, one single door with steps going up to it. Beautiful stone building in Found Street. Beautiful pine panelling. It turned out about that Betty, she didn't know, she was actually unwrapping and discovering, apparently, the best example of a Georgian single-door, double-fronted shop front, if not in Ireland, but in the whole of Dublin. And so Charlie Hawhey then put a preservation order on it, so Temple Bar was born. All these people started coming in there with interest, you know, like John Rusher, who no, he was no one. He was a student nurse, young designer, up and coming with Eileen Doolan. Michael Mortel, who had just started on his own, people like Richard Lewis. And suddenly she had this honeypot of all these new young... Up and she said, Mike, why don't you tell Erlingus that you've got an idea where you can do an article on all these new up-and-coming Irish fashion designers, a story for Cara magazine. And they went for it. My phone wouldn't stop ringing them for me to do fashion. Suddenly I kept doing it all the time. And then through that, I remember wonderful models like Evelyn Barry and Sharon Bacon and Mario Leary. They would come having to put on their own makeup. They would traipse these bags, kit bags, full of wigs, shoes and accessories. And every time they had a shoot, they had to put on a wig, this wig or those shoes. And one day Betty just said, stop it. Like Albert Finney, stop that train. She said, no more. She said, as soon as you came and just looked like that, forget the shoes and the wigs and everything. And uh, then we started using a little bit more hair and makeup on the models, which, as you know, started a whole new thing. 
hair by, makeup by, styling by. And at that stage, Betty was doing all the styling anyway. But she had her own way of doing things. And uh, I kept winning all these awards for it, you know. But I enjoyed feminine beauty then because I found it easy. The less you do with light and with everything else, the better it looks. And then I started getting all this corporate work, people like Dennis O'Brien and, you know, I, I mean, from the little studio in Crown Alley and the one I had in, later on in Carrick on Shannon, I travelled the world. Mike opts sticks moving to Sligo and Loch Arrow, where he initially stayed in temporary accommodation. So we used to come down and we used to, in the beginning, we are staying with Tommy Flynn's caravans, you know. We weren't snobs, we were just to go fishing in a boat. And we had some great fun. And I remember we'd bring some of Betty's friends down from Dublin, uh, girls. And then what happened, um, Eric Vandergrin, my friend that I worked with an awful lot, he suddenly wanted to go back to Holland. Don't ask me why, but he did with his Irish girlfriend. He had a gypsy caravan, one that was horse-drawn for tourists, one of the very first ones. I think they were built around about 1965. And he had that for his kids to play in. But he landed and um, said, Betty, do you want this? Not me, Betty, do you want it? She said, well, why not? And uh, this would have been about 1978. I think Betty gave me 300 euros for it or something. She had the money, I didn't have any money. So we stayed in the caravan for the fishing. And I'd come up weekends. It was there all the time, for two years nearly. And, um, you know, we did it up a bit. And uh, it was there and it was lovely. And we used to call all these wonderful barbecues. Because uh, we were living in Dublin. And she said, you know, there's absolutely nothing for sale around here. But she saw Carty's Cottage up above the bridge. And it was actually a livable inn because the people that had it from Lucan had been doing it up. Now, it was nowhere near done up, but at least it had electricity and it didn't have water. You could live in it. It's better than the caravan, really. So we just got it and paid it off. And that's how I have that. And I've still got the caravan. I've done it up and I might write my autobiography in it. I've travelled to 50-odd parts of the world, 150-odd destinations. And anyone that is used to what I call a Western-type life, this little nugget of 23-carat gold is the best place in the entire world to have a complete life. That is the most important thing. I feel very, very privileged to live now amongst a lot of young men that look good. They haven't gone to England America, or God forbid, Australia. They're still here. And the women are, and they look good. I think they're beginning to look stronger. They look better. They're very sure of themselves. And they're beginning to realize what a wonderful playground they have. You can go anywhere in Ireland, and you're free. Bureaucratic treacle is only there if you want it, and you have to deal with it. That's a little bit funny for me. You can't tell an Irishman what to do. He'd laugh at you. That's what I love about it. I just find that the, the Irish way of life, I call it 23 karat gold. This is very important. It's physically set at the extremities of Western Europe in a lap of comfort. Don't ask me why, but that's what God gave it. And you've got the Gulf Stream with these wonderful airflows and currents coming here. You've got the North Atlantic poundings, but Ireland's actually set in this lap of comfort called the Mid-Atlantic Drift. It's a bit of this and a bit of that. And everything about it, and this is me as a photographer, I realize we have the most turbulent and varied skies anywhere in the entire world. 
and that gives mood swings to the flora and fauna. We have the best mean average daylight in the world, and it's photosynthesis, not heat, that does it. With the flora and fauna, we also have mood swings in the people. You've got people that are up and down. You get someone in Ireland that's a drunk, they're the real thing. They're 23 karat gold. If you get someone in Ireland that's a depressed person, they're the real thing. They're really down. They're almost down into Australia. They're so depressed. If you get, say, good grassland here, it's the best in the world. Even better than the bluegrass of Kentucky. Now, on the other hand, suddenly per capita, where else in the world will you get so many incredible artists? writers, singers, poets, and just raconteurs. You won't get it anywhere. Also, for its size, look at the sports men and women we produce. And remember, it's not like a big thing. This is a small country. It's not like the UK. It's not like America, where that sport thing becomes huge. And together we will go and do the best thing. started following Sligo Rovers and um, I just found it interesting because I used to listen to it on the radio all the time. It was always a mud bath. I remember the days of Ian Gill singing and Johnny Kenny Sr. But then I started going, to, I've been a Sligo Rovers supporter what since mid-90s. When I go to the matches, I love it because you meet people you see every week and when you actually look at the pitch and the players playing, you're right on top of them. You're not like looking at a pinprick down below you, and you know everyone. And it's like, and good, bad, and different. You go, it's like G the GA is the same thing. You know everyone. I rather like it, you know. And when we play well, it's no different to Chelsea playing well or Manchester United. It's the same feeling inside the inner sanctum. You know, you're not just a number. This is my family, isn't it? Great, I love it. Mike lost his beloved wife Betty during COVID, yet carries on with his own unique perspective on life. The thing is, when you have a soulmate that you confer with, you create, and suddenly, for 10 years nearly, she wasn't well. The sad thing is, when you go through a period like that and you, you just get into a routine of loving and looking after, but you don't actually realise there is going to be an Amen chorus. I want to say one thing, it's very important. Recently, I was very fascinated with the fact that Clint Eastwood is 92 or whatever, and someone said, Clint, how in the heck do you stay so fresh-looking? He said, I never let the old man in. And I thought that was good, but then I pretended he was talking to me, and I was the questionnaire. So I said, well, Clint, that's all very well for you, Clint. But I said, I can't do that because, A, I don't know who the old man is or what he looks like. At least you know what the old man looks like so you don't have to let him in. I said, all I know is inside me there's a little boy and he's got a life sentence with no reprieve and he ain't getting out. I said, not only that, the little boy doesn't want to leave. He loves it here.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.